<笑>鬼岛之音 ，Ghost Island Media。Hey Emily Y Wu here. I produce this show and a couple of others at Ghost Island Media. We hope you are safe and well wherever you are. One quick announcement: We have just launched a newsletter. It's called Waste Not a Newsletter. It's written every week by Nature Nate and Yu Chen Lai, our production assistant, who's been with us for at least half a year now. Check it out. It's wastenotwhynot.substack.com. You can also find the direct link in the show notes. Hey Nate, we have a sponsored message to read. I remember that. How could I forget? We need to thank the people who helped send us to the U.S. Okay, but more like in a conversation with me. Less I'm like- having a conversation with Emily. This is how I talk when I'm having a conversation. <laughs> well, I just can't even have a normal voice. <laughs> Yeah, we need we need to thank them. You know, I never thought that we would, within our first year of our show, go on tour, and that was because someone sponsored us to do it. This episode is supported by the Cypress River Advisors, a U.S.-based technology and media strategic advisory firm. Is it the Cypress River Advisors or just Cypress River Advisors? <laughs> like, is the Cypress River a place? I don't know what to say to that, but they do a lot of cool things. Yeah, they do, don't they? They sponsor ARPA-E, which is a new energy conference. They fund research into air pollution, air pollution monitoring. They also fund battery research. They do a lot of cool stuff, and I'm very grateful that they would support something which is rather soft, like our show. All right. Hey, I'm Nature Nate, and this is Waste Not Why Not, a podcast on how not to save the environment. I'm an environmental researcher based in Taiwan, and I work on energy, ocean, and waste issues. Today, we have a live interview recorded at the annual meeting of the American Association for the Advancement of Sciences in Seattle. This was in mid-February, back when the world was slightly more normal. The theme of the year was envisioning tomorrow's Earth. I got to speak with the Honorable Dr. Jane Lubchenco. She was the appointed administrator of the U.S. National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, or NOAA. I'm just going to call it NOAA from now on. And she served under President Obama from 2009 to 2013. If you're unfamiliar with NOAA, that's the department that I like to call the Ocean Department. It deals with everything oceanic and atmospheric, which, in simple terms, relates to climate change. The U.S. National Weather Service, weather forecasts, ocean conservation, fisheries management. NOAA is responsible in part for all of this, and this was the topic of our last week's episode. So, if you want a refresher to know what NOAA is, head back to our previous episode. For me personally, Dr. Jane was an inspiration. I first became acquainted with Dr. Jane's work during my master's program when I was doing volunteer research for NOAA. I was helping them survey marine protected area managers and determine what the impact of recreation was having in marine protected areas. I naively sort of felt like Dr. Jane was my boss in some kind of convoluted way, like because I was volunteering with the Marine Sanctuaries Program and she was the head of NOAA. Like there was some connection there, and. Made me want to work for NOAA because I knew that there were scientists. People I worked with immediately were scientists, and it was led by a scientist. And this was a science agency that was working to protect what I thought and still think is the most valuable thing on Earth, which is the ocean. 
that's why it was inspiring because I felt like there was this tangible connection. And it wasn't just me working at NOAA. She made that connection tangible for other people. When Superstorm Sandy happened, she linked it to climate change. When she talked about ecology, she talked about how important it was for regular people. She tried to take science and make it connect to them personally and emotionally. And that's why Dr. Jane was so cool. And that's why I wanted to talk with her at AAAS. During the four years that Dr. Jane was leading NOAA, she saw some of the most extreme weather events the U.S. ever saw. And she also ran the agency during one of the largest man-made disasters affecting the ocean, the BP oil spill. In our conversation, which you're about to hear, Dr. Jane talks about the importance for scientists to become bilingual, to become fluent in science, but also fluent in normal people talk. (laughs) Something I still haven't mastered. (laughs) All too often, science is not at the table when decisions are being made because it's not accessible. It's not understandable. It's not seen as being relevant or useful, and sometimes it's not seen as being credible. And so that's on the scientific community to figure out how to be bilingual, have it be accessible. We also discuss the future of the ocean. It used to be for most of human history that the ocean was seen as so immense, so bountiful, that it was endlessly resilient. It was simply too big to fail. And so the new narrative that is emerging is that the ocean is so big and so central to many of the things we care about that it's too big to ignore. It was a delight to talk with Dr. Jane. You can tell that she has not only tremendous knowledge, but she has tremendous science communication knowledge. And that was just so cool to meet someone who's so obviously more advanced in something that you do and then to be able to interact with them and learn from them in real time. All right, let's get into it. Play the tape. My name is Nate Maynard, or my host name is Nature Nate from the podcast Waste Not, Why Not, produced by Ghost Island Media. We are from Taiwan which is rather ironic for an environmental podcast to fly all the way here, but that's kind of the point with what we talk about. We are on the AAAS SciMic Studio, which is presented by This Study Shows, a Wiley podcast. And I'm very excited, deeply excited, to be here with Dr. Jane Lubchenko, distinguished professor from Oregon State University. I first, I guess, heard about you when I was in my master's program and I was studying ocean policy. And I was so enthusiastic, I guess I still am, enthusiastic about being a scientist, being an ecologist, and then going into government. And then not only being in government, but managing NOAA, which is an extremely complicated and kind of weirdly vast organization for, for the budget maybe that it has. And the work that you did, especially, and the teams that you led during what were very intense moments in in U.S., let's just say, ocean ecosystems. But before we get to that, and especially before we start talking about the future of the ocean, I'd like to know, why are you here at AAAS? What is the message that you're bringing, and and what do you want to tell people about, about the ocean, about science? So, Nate, it's great to be with you. Thanks for this opportunity to chat. Uh, I'm here at AAAS because this really is the 
meeting where all scientists come together and trade information, trade new challenges, new excitement, celebrate successes, uh, focus on business yet to be done. I had the pleasure of serving as the president of AAAS 23 years ago, and the meetings that year were here in Seattle. And so it's been a great opportunity to not only come and interact with everybody, but to reflect on the changes that have happened in science, in society, in the world in the last 23 years. 23 years, wow, I don't wanna, I don't wanna give myself away, but I was uh, maybe not old enough to comprehend the magnitude of what was going on uh, when that was happening. So maybe like, what was just one, what's one major difference you see now at AAAS than from, from way back then? AAAS has always been focused on sharing science with the broader world, but it's become much more sophisticated at the many, many ways that that can happen. When I was president of AAAS, I issued a challenge to scientists that they needed to reflect on and embrace more fully their social contract, the social contract that scientists have with society. We scientists love doing science. It's just so cool and fun, you know, just solving problems, figuring things out. How does the world work? How is it changing? Uh, but I was of the mindset that we weren't doing enough to really give back to society in the way it needed. We weren't really tackling many of the really big problems that society had. And I was mostly cognizant of environmental changes underway, climate change among them, but not exclusively. And much of the science that scientists do, especially in the academic world, ends up in the scientific literature and doesn't necessarily make it into boardrooms, into the halls of Congress, into kitchens of people everywhere. And I believe that scientists needed to, as part of their social contract, do a much better job of sharing their science more broadly. Scientists are doing that so much more today than they were 23 years ago. We have a lot of new organizations like COMPASS, like the Leopold Leadership Program that are actively training scientists to be what I call bilingual, which means both speak the language of science, but also the language of lay people. Uh, there are more opportunities such as this one right here to share that science more broadly. And the public is hungry for scientific information, but so too are many elected officials, many business people, many heads of various religions around the world, many citizens. And so there is a huge opportunity for scientific information to help people understand what's happening and what the likely consequences of different choices are so they can make smarter decisions. And those decisions might be made by individuals or by institutions. All too often, science is not at the table when those decisions are being made because it's not accessible, it's not understandable, it's not seen as being relevant or useful, and sometimes it's not seen as being credible. And so that's on the scientific community to figure out how to be bilingual, have it be accessible, and we've seen huge progress in that in the last 
couple of decades. So something that I've seen, especially doing this podcast, you know, I thought I was a really good science communicator. I would give my PowerPoint. I would talk about coral reef economics. People afterwards would say, oh, Nate, that's nice. I never thought about corals that way. And then when I met the producer of the show, Emily, and I explained my research, she said, what are you talking about? <laughs> Did you have a, a similar moment that made you realize how important the social contract was? Did you have like a similar moment where you realized, oh, I'm, I'm not actually really getting through to people? I think all scientists have had that uh, if they've tried to communicate. And uh, a lot of what I have learned has been pretty much trial by fire, trial and error, trying things out, seeing what works. I co-founded Compass, an organization that trains scientists to be better communicators, in part because I didn't have any training and I wanted some. And so it was sort of a way of learning vicariously. And we are celebrating Compass's 20th anniversary here at AAAS this year. So that's actually pretty exciting. Wow, 20 years. Is there any one tip that you would give to science communicators or just regular communicators communicating science that could help with ease of understanding for the public? Is there just like one one cool trick that you've learned over these past 20 years? I think one of the least used and best tools to use are metaphors and analogies. And finding a really good metaphor or analogy to communicate something that's really complicated can just, all of a sudden, you see the light bulbs go on. For example, a lot of people are curious about the connections between extreme weather and climate change. And for many, many years, scientists would go into sort of a nerdy explanation of attribution and talk about how much of some phenomenon you could attribute to climate change. When people hear words that they don't understand, that's actually a block. Uh, And so instead of talking about attribution, I think a much more effective way to explain the interaction is to give an analogy. This particular one has to do with baseball. Okay. Okay, you ready? I'm ready. I'm I'm not a big baseball fan, but I think I can. That's okay, you don't need to be. You'll get this. You'll get get this. So if a baseball player starts to take steroids, the chances of his hitting really big home runs and more home runs gets bigger and bigger. That doesn't mean that any one of those home runs can be attributed to his taking steroids because he was probably hitting home runs before. But the pattern of hitting more and bigger is directly related to his taking steroids. And the analogy is that what we're seeing now is weather on steroids, whether on climate steroids. So finding an analogy to help explain a phenomenon that connects the dots between the known and the related unknown is a really powerful tool. Not easy, always, to find a really good analogy, because if it's not quite right, then people often have a misconception. So. This is one of the things I challenge my students to do, is to find, I teach a science and policy course at Oregon State University. And I have students in my class this year from 10 different uh, departments on campus. So lots of different types of science. And so across the board, I say, okay, find a commonly misunderstood scientific concept 
and create a good analogy for it. And they have fun with it. It's kind of a game to figure out how, and then they can use that analogy. Okay, great. An analogy and metaphor, and you picked baseball, and that's a very good one. So maybe let's, let's move forward a little bit in time. You were managing NOAA, and as we all know, there's been some budget cuts recently, but then I remember back when I was really closely following NOAA, there was government shutdowns. Were you able to use metaphor to kind of convince people in government, other stakeholders, in order to support NOAA? How, how, did you, how did you work with the government? How did you work with the public to kind of build the administration during that time? It was a deep, deep pleasure to be nominated and then confirmed as the administrator of NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. I began in 2009 and was there for four years. NOAA's portfolio is extremely broad, you know, everything oceanic and atmospheric. And so whether it's climate change or uh, the National Weather Service is part of NOAA, so weather forecasts, but also ocean conservation, fishery management, you know, the whole shebang, and it's all interrelated. Uh, amazingly talented people, super dedicated, waking up each and every day thinking about how what they can do is going to serve the public better. It's a science agency. My background in oceans and climate was actually really useful, but it was also an opportunity for me to learn about satellites and about weather forecasts. I didn't know much about meteorology, so it was really fun as a learning experience as well. And we had huge challenges. You mentioned a few of them. But we had the most extreme weather in any four years in U.S. history, those four years that I was there. Staying on top of that was a challenge. The Deepwater Horizon oil spill disaster was a challenge. We had a major satellite system. That the satellites that are in place that provide over 95% of the information that's used to make weather forecasts are working fine, but the program to build the next generation of weather satellites was seriously dysfunctional. So we had to fix that, and that was no easy thing to do. Fixing satellites is Fixing satellites not that easy, it sounds like. not that easy, especially the satellite program. And we had ClimateGate, uh, all of this craziness that was stirred up by climate deniers uh, trying to discredit the credibility and... Uh, malign the motives of scientists. So, yeah, we uh, had sort of one disaster after another. Nonetheless, we were able to achieve some really big wins uh, despite all this stuff coming in over the transom. And those wins included things like major reforms of the fisheries in U.S. federal waters. And these have been truly transformative. After decades and decades of overfishing, we have now ended overfishing and are rebuilding fisheries so that now our fisheries are, are some of the best managed in the world. And the reforms that we put in place are now spurring others to action using some of the same tools that we use to turn ours around. Another thing that we did, the president issued an executive order to create the first ever national ocean policy, which 
created an overarching mandate for the ocean, which didn't exist before. We have a Clean Water Act. We have a Clean Air Act. We didn't have any overarching mandate for the ocean. You think that would be important for a country like the United States, which has such a commanding ocean area around the world? It's the largest exclusive economic zone in the world, so the area over which we have jurisdiction. And it's actually one and a half times the lower 48. So it's a huge, huge area. It's 3.4 million square miles. So it's immense. And that area is a huge responsibility. There are lots of different things happening in the water. They're becoming increasingly crowded places, especially in the coastal areas. And so the overarching mandate that was issued was to achieve healthy, productive, and resilient ocean ecosystems. In short, healthy oceans matter, and many of the things that we need and want from the ocean depend directly on a healthy ocean. And so what does that mean? That means fishing sustainably. It means addressing climate change, because climate change is affecting oceans in huge ways. But it requires that the federal government, all the different 26 different federal agencies and offices, each having some role to coordinate and to talk together. So there's now a National Ocean Council that provides that crosstalk and that coordination. We also, this executive order created a mechanism for the federal government to connect directly to the regions of the ocean, states around the country. So New England, the Mid-Atlantic, South Atlantic, Caribbean, Alaska, West Coast, Pacific. Uh, Those regions uh, were invited to create ocean plans to figure out how to think about the collective impact of all these different activities on the health of the ocean so that we can protect and restore our ocean ecosystems, but also to deconflict all these conflicting uses. So that overarching mandate was uh, pretty exciting, and the regions that completed their plans are moving ahead with implementing them, despite there being a new administration in place, in part because they see that it's benefiting them. The fisheries reforms that we did are benefiting fishermen. And so there has not been this call to roll back those reforms or to undo what one administration did because the fishermen are benefiting. And so a lot of the time that I spent was working with members of Congress, both Republicans and Democrats, uh, the few independents, to make sure that we are working together to achieve these goals. And so not only are many of the changes that we put in place benefiting the people who are involved, but members of Congress are very much on board with those as well. And so, for example, when there have been, President Trump has proposed very significant budget cuts and elimination of very important programs at NOAA, but Congress has pushed back and said, no, we value these. We don't want to defund them. And so those relationships, and this is one of the things that I really learned in spades when I was at NOAA, that relationships matter. And that meant building relationships with all sorts of different kinds of people. But those relationships are 
what makes Washington work. It's not just about politics. Yes, politics looms large, but relationships matter hugely. And building those bridges, figuring out how to find common ground, where there are shared values, shared opportunities, is really the way you get things done, even in very challenging times. So that that's a lot. I mean, you did a lot with NOAA, satellites, oil spills, hurricanes, superstorms, and you built the res- resilience, you built these networks, and that brings us up to the present day. And now, you know, let's, let's imagine this future Earth. Let's imagine 2030, 2040, when, you know, we have these conservation targets for marine protected areas globally, internationally. And at the same time, we have, not just in the United States, but, but globally, we have federal governments and state and local governments, of course, too, that are not that interested in protecting the ocean. Where do you see the future Earth? Where do you see the ocean in 2030 and beyond? Are you, are you optimistic? And then, what do we do about that? Yeah. Um, in September of 2019, we had a new report from the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It was a special report on the ocean in the cryosphere. And it was a scary, scary report. It said that the ocean is a lot warmer, it's higher, it's more acidic, we have more heat waves, it's more depleted, disrupted, and it's less predictable. And all of those changes, a lot of them are due directly to climate change, but you add on overfishing and pollution, nutrient, plastic, chemical pollution, it's a huge, huge challenge. The IPCC report says that the ocean has been a serious victim of climate change. There was another report that came out shortly thereafter that I was involved in, It was commissioned by the high-level panel for a sustainable ocean economy, 14 heads of state that are working together on ocean and climate issues. And this report asked the question, what potential is there to mitigate climate change with ocean-based activities? Because, of course, most people, when they think about mitigation, they think about planting trees, making transportation greener, making buildings greener. This report found, in short, that ocean-based activities, including renewable energy from the ocean, uh, decarbonizing the shipping fleet, shifting diets to include more seafood and less animal protein from land, protecting blue carbon ecosystems, mangroves, salt marshes, and seagrass beds, and storing carbon in the deep sea. If you add all those together, you can get as much as 21% of the carbon emission reductions we need to get to the 1.5 degree target by 2050. So that's huge. That's incredible. So that means that the ocean, if we care for the ocean, then the ocean will also care for us too. That's right. That's exactly right. So here is a new opportunity, new tools in the toolbox that weren't even on our radar screen. And I think we're seeing an evolution about the narrative of the ocean. It used to be, for most of human history, that the ocean was seen as so immense, so bountiful, that it was endlessly resilient. It was simply too big to fail. And some of the activities today are continuing on that path, more and more exploitation. However, we've seen in the last decade that, in fact, that narrative has shifted. You see bleached coral reefs, all these heat waves dead critters floating on the surface. You see... Um, dead zones, dead sitting zones, in rivers. 
all this uh, disgusting plastic pollution. And the new narrative that is emerging is that, oh my gosh, it's impossible to fix all this. It's just too much, too difficult. Vested interests are too entrenched. It's that the ocean is too big to fix. So we've gone from too big to fail to too big to fix. But that's not the future I see. The future I see is a new narrative that says, if you look carefully at all these amazing things that are happening around the world to recover oceans with marine protected areas, to recover fisheries by good fishery management, to protect blue carbon ecosystems, mangroves, salt marshes, seagrass beds, over and over and over, there are amazing things that are happening. They're just not at the scale that we need or the pace that we need. And so the new narrative that is emerging is that the ocean is so big and so central to many of the things we care about, whether it's equity, addressing climate change, providing food security. It's so central to those and more that it's too big to ignore. So that's the potential that's the opportunity, but it won't happen unless we embrace that narrative and use science, work with uh, elected officials, CEOs, heads of religions, uh, citizens, NGOs around the world to actually make that new narrative a possible one, a hopeful one. There's huge urgency in addressing these problems. And yes, they are complicated, but they are not hopeless. It is possible. We've seen so many good things happening that we need to find the ways to accelerate, to escalate, to replicate those models of success and bring us to a point where we can recover the bounty in the ocean, we can heal the ocean, and in so doing, heal ourselves. Thank you so much, Dr. Jane. We're unfortunately out of time, but you've left me with some powerful metaphors and some powerful phrases to use. I love too big to ignore. That's great for the ocean. And I think it's a message that we can all take back, talk to our friends, our families, and our communities. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today. Uh, I really appreciate it. Thanks, Nate. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. And I love your pin, your stripes. Thank you. Yep, my warm and stripes. This is also the Sustainable Development Goals with the ocean at the center. That was Nature Nate, and this has been the Waste Not, Why Not podcast. Today's interview was recorded at the 2020 AAAS annual meeting on the SciMai stage presented by This Study Shows by Wiley. Do you have a question for us? Email us at ask at wastenotwhynot.com. Become a monthly supporter on Patreon. Subscribe to our newsletter on Substack. We are Waste Not Why Not on Patreon and Substack, and Waste Not Pod on Twitter. This has been a Ghost Island Media production based in Taiwan. This episode was produced by Emily Y. Wu and Nature Nate, edited by Emily Y. Wu, production assistance by me, Yuchen Lai, brand designed by Thomas Lee. And that's it. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Bye. You know you got to.